0: Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Join me as I seek out the small incremental changes being applied in other industries that we can learn from and that can be applied in healthcare. Can these changes bring immediate value, but also add up to the big improvements and revolution we need in healthcare? Come along with me to explore the possibilities. My innovative guests from around the globe have used small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Ankit Rohit he is the chief clinical officer for Ashore Care. Ankit, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Nick. Uh, as I do always and it's always a pleasure when I meet a fellow clinician who's uh, branched out into other areas, I like to get a little bit of the background. I think it helps in terms of setting the context for the episode. Tell us your journey and how you arrived here if you would. Sure, Nick. So my background training is in internal medicine and
1: ER. I was born and raised in India where I did my medicine training from Mumbai. Uh, After that, I moved to UK, where I trained in emergency medicine and trauma, and experienced NHS healthcare. I was there for close to five years, and I was practicing ER. In 2008, I came to US. I did my training in internal medicine, uh, followed by MBA that I did from Fuqua School of Business, Duke University. Over the past years, I've worked in uh, multiple care settings, both as an internist and as an ER physician. Uh, both as a clinician and as, as an executive healthcare professional. I was involved in founding and directing multiple physicians group, chairing medicine and hospital setting, as well as system utilization review committees. I have supervised large group of clinicians, have reviewed hospital and group metrics, as well as developed and led organization strategies, uh, both for the hospital and healthcare organizations. Over the years, I have directly been involved in implementation of various EHRs to large health system. During the roles that I've uh, been practicing for so many years, I have encountered multiple pitfalls throughout the continuum of patients' journey, right from the ambulatory setting uh, to the hospital and the nursing homes, including transition of cares, medication reconciliation errors, uh SDOH influences and lack of proper tools to assist clinicians to realize better ways and opportunities to address them. So I wanted to make a pivot mostly from clinical care to system-based thinking and to help improve the way healthcare is delivered, which led me to Assure Care where I joined as a chief clinical officer last year. Uh, just a brief about Assure Care in one line. Assure care it provides extensive population health management solutions which I oversee research and development of clinical-based best practices, workflows, and provide them with clinical subject matter opinions and expertise.
0: So um, before we get into that, uh, tell us a little bit about your journey um, from from clinician um, to business thinker, and and specifically system-based thinking, because that's not the traditional pathway, um, you, you've you qualified essentially in three countries uh, to, to practice medicine. That's almost like going to medical school three times, uh, although maybe there was a little bit of reciprocity between India and England. I, I, I'm not sure about that. But I know between England mm-hmm. and the U.S., you, you went back and studied again. So you've done mm-hmm. a lot of studying. I'm kind of curious, A, about that journey, and B, about your comparisons between those systems. Yeah, that's...
1: Uh... Um, Thanks that you're asking me this question, Nick. So having experienced different countries and health systems and payment models, including India, which is mainly fee-for-service, NHS, which we all know is a socialized medicine, with mainly single-payer systems, they do have some private insurance, but majority of the patients, they don't use it as often. And then US payer system, uh, which right now is mainly fee-for-service. So it, it intrigued me when I initially came to U.S. in 2008 while I was doing my residency. I had an R effect because we were following the gold standards of investigation and diagnosis. But at the same time, the way the medicine was practiced, I did see we were almost overutilizing our tools. While I was working in emergency medicine, to give you an example, a patient comes with a headache, and I'm seeing physicians are doing a CAT scan which kind of didn't equate to the way I had practiced in NHS. So I saw that other things I saw, you know, patients going to primary care providers, PCPs are focusing on point of care tests and focusing on really acute care episodes. In NHS, it was absolutely different. In NHS, you know, when you go to a primary care physician, the focus is really, really on preventative health there's a dialogue there's a discussion with the patient that engages patient to talk to primary care physicians tell them about their background their history their social factors and reasons and primary care physician really know a patient as a whole so seeing those differences uh you know we all know that us spends so much money in healthcare but if i see the uh, mortality and overall outcomes uh, there's not much difference in the outcomes that UK has versus US. So the question that came in my mind, what are we doing different in US? We are spending so much money in healthcare, why are outcomes not do not equate to the amount of efforts that we are spending. What I realized that, you know, every healthcare system has its own pros and cons, but utilization and care management in US have become highly fragmented. There's a lot of information and data scattered throughout various systems which decreases deficiencies to treat patient. So keeping in mind all of these factors and the way the medicine was practiced, I really wanted to understand how the healthcare works in the US. So that motivated me to do MBA from Duke. I also did uh, my concentration in health sector management, kind of to learn about how the insurance works, how the prior and billing system works, et cetera. So that's my journey. I've always had some entrepreneurship Uh, skills in me. I also started a hospitalist management group in Massachusetts a few years ago. We had contracted with different hospitals and long-term acute care facilities. So keeping in mind all of those uh, factors, I always have been intrigued in how do I change uh, the practice of medicine at a system level.
0: Yeah, so uh, thanks for that. I mean, I think, you know, interesting journey, fee-for-service, single-payer, I would say essentially fee-for-service in the US. So you, you've been in a, a, a similar systems, albeit, let's be clear, the Indian system is is quite different, but has m- many similarities, certainly to the US, mm. um, but substantially lower costs, let's be clear, um, which is part of the reason that we see all this uh, flow of medical tourism. I, I think you were being over generous in your uh, description of uh, over-investigation in the emergency room, um, I, 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 would, I would go a significant step further and say there is far more investigation uh, than necessary. I think from a clinical standpoint, I, I'd been, you know, fully outspoken about this and you know there are multiple causes i don't i i don't sort of attribute this to this is clinicians misbehaving i start with the premise that you know everybody comes in with the best intentions but the system is pushing them towards behavior. And, you know, some of that is litigation, to be clear. There's a great fear of it, much less in the United Kingdom, although that's rising, Um, you know, perhaps less in in India. But, you know, we have major challenges with the basis of this system. You've now been through this. I I mean, I think I I wouldn't be trite and say which is best, because I think that's just a, a ridiculous question. I think what's a better question is what can we pick and learn from those experiences and importantly based on your system thinking that would start to sort of tilt the US system, which pays gargantuan amounts of money but does not get value for money. Can you pick out some learnings that you've had along the way? Because your experience is relatively unique in that sense.
1: Sure, Nick. Uh, as you rightly said, uh, I would like to re-emphasize on that statement. You uh, know, a lot of the providers, including myself, who work in ER in high-stress environment, we are mainly practicing defensive medicine. I know there are a lot of investigations with patients don't don't need, but there's a there's a stress that's hanging on my head. What if? What if I miss this diagnosis? I've seen a lot of my colleagues, a lot of my surgical surgeon friends who have had malpractice suits. And if you challenge them, you know, seeing from the provider's eyes, they probably were right in the management, but the way the system is set, uh, you're practicing in fear. Uh, moving on to the question that you said, uh, one of the key differences that I have seen in NHS versus US is we think that access to healthcare equates to good health in US, which which I think is a, uh, uh, not nearly a true statement we are focusing to increase access to healthcare, but i think the big part what we are missing is we can provide multiple hospitals and clinics to the patients but what's more important is we need to see what are the barriers that are being faced by the patient to have a follow-up to that excess of care and to give you an example i see in my practice as an internist i see a patient who comes with chest pain rule out 40 years old, young female who walks in. I admit the patient for a night. I do telemetry, I do EKG. Next day patient has an echocardiogram. Uh, We rule out troponins. Uh, So we need to keep patient in for a night for an observation to rule out chest pain. And then we do series of tests, including lipid panels, A1C. Then we recognize patients have some risk risk factors. Uh, Maybe they're pre-diabetic, And then we do the workup and we send patients home or discharge the patients. But what we think that by doing the whole workup, we have taken care of patient's illness, but what we are missing is how strong is our follow-up? Do I I know whether the patient has a primary care to follow-up? I've diagnosed a condition, but what control do I have to make sure that the patient follow-ups with a provider to ensure the care is given to the patient? I can prescribe a medication, insulin, but we all know in the U.S. the cost of insulin is so high that even if I write medications for the patients, patients may be not able to afford those medications. So as a clinician, I'm doing my part, but I'm not aware of the other factors which are going in the background. So there are a lot of loose ends that I see in the U.S. The intent is good, but there are a lot of other factors outside of the medical uh, intervention that I think we need to focus on.
0: Yeah, I I mean, you bring up lots of points in there. And, you know, they're all uh, valid. I think you're entirely right. I think we're both in agreement. I always start out with the the notion that everybody comes in with the best intentions. Um, You know, that's true across the throughout the industry. But if you incent behavior, uh, through various means, even unintentionally this happens. We see over-investigation. We see it from a litigation standpoint. Um, And, you know, partly the insurance system is driving people to this short-term behaviour that you see in the emergency department where I can get care... Potentially, I don't want to say free because nothing is ever free, to be clear, but I don't pay out of pocket. And, you know, it's not connected to the back end because I don't have a back end where we're crippling mm. people as a result of, you know, this um, failure in delivering a concerted healthcare care uh, system. I, I, I'm. Sorry, but I just have to make one comment about diabetes and insulin. It's just an outrage to me that it costs seven hundred to fifteen hundred dollars for a, a patent that was given for a dollar a piece uh, by the inventors who felt uh, that it was, uh, you know, inappropriate for the medical profession to make money where you could save lives. I think most of, if not all, the medical profession concur with that. But we've lost our way that's a real struggle for me. Um, So I I, I think, you know, huge numbers of problems. Um, For those of you just joining, I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Ankit Rohtagi. He is the chief clinical officer for AssureCare. We were just talking about the challenges of systems. You know, Ankit's extended experience growing up in an original system, uh, fee-for-service, moving to essentially single-payer and then ultimately into the U.S. system. Uh, The struggles and you know some of the learning points. I think you know most people that have had those experiences, and I certainly have, recognise that you can't take the single payer system. Right, that's what we should have in the US. It's just never going to work. You're not going to impose that. Um, you know there's a, a, a fundamental resistance. But you know you you talked a little bit about some of the challenges of tying things back, and I think it's important to get to that Um, because that's some of the areas that I think you've really focused on, which is, you know, how do you identify these problems? So you talked about seeing this patient. You start to see some of the indicators. And, you you know, we could have a whole show. In fact, I'm I'm certainly going to have a whole show talking about whether we've got decent screening for some of these things. But at least if we have that, how do we then tie that back? Are there solutions in place that can help for this? Uh, that's a great uh, uh, question, Nick, and I,
1: I would like to uh, talk a bit about the diabetes. So we know that the global prevalence of type two diabetes has sharply increased over the four decades, and it's projected to increase further. Cardiovascular dis- risk, cardiovascular disease remains the leading cause of death and disability in patients with diabetes. There's a lot of recommendations by societies such as American Heart Association who do give some recommendations on how to manage the risk factors for these type 2 diabetes including lifestyle intervention screening methods doing a1c and lipid profile i think the best opportunity for better outcomes for these diabetes patients are and other chronic diseases so to say is in effectively leveraging the data and what i mean by that you know right now if i do have a patient whom i diagnose with diabetes i do the a1c screening Things just don't stop there. The CPT code or the or the condition of prediabetes or diabetes, along with some SDOH data, uh, should ideally generate a clinical pathway, which should and which should lead to utilizing interprofessional teams, uh, modifying initial risk factors such as weight loss management programs or programs to help with physical inactivities. There have been some drives going on in U.S. VA introduced similar programs such as MOVE, which is a weight management program, which is offering services as one of the preventative strategies. So not only these patients will need medication, but they will need a whole array of services, A, to educate them on diabetes, B, to identify modifiable factors. I see a lot of patients you know, who are pre-diabetic, but they don't have means or access to healthy food. Or healthy diet because of socio-economical reason they just can afford those expensive food so then once we identify those risk factors we can provide some education and we can support those socio-economic people whether we provide them meals on wheels we provide them vouchers we provide them transport so they are able to go to their follow-ups and have routine screening for other complications that arises from diabetes etc
0: so, I, I, I mean, I think fundamentally I agree with you, but in practice, I don't, in part because I've seen lots of instances of these programs, and I've experienced it through my own family. People living in food deserts have no options, and It doesn't even matter if you had the money, and they don't, and if they had the money they wouldn't live in these places, quite frankly, Mm. but they can't access healthy food, if any food at all. I mean, in in the particular example that I have personal experience of, there was maybe a corner shop with, uh, who knows what kind of junk, predominantly alcohol that was for sale, how do we solve for these problems so we can identify them i think that's entirely right we understand that weight management but we as a a human humanity are programmed to go for both the most unhealthy because you know we're programmed from this feast or famine but ultimately it's what's available how are you seeing the the solutions around that so i would like to give some examples of what's happening. So Kaiser Permanente,
1: we know about Kaiser Permanente. So they launched an initiative. They used Thrive uh, tool, which is a tools for health and resilience in vulnerable environment, which was introduced by Prevention Institute. So they have been using Thrive tools. It has some key questions that we ask the patients. Where do you live? Do you have a shelter? Do you have access to food? Can you afford to pay your medications? Do you have any troubles getting transportation or to medical appointments? Do you have a caretaker responsibility or are you unemployed or looking for a job? So what they did, they essentially assessed the patient's physical, mental and social conditions and matched the the needs related to appropriate services. They were able to determine that more than 60% of Northern California members had at least one unmet social needs. So what they did, they took the data And they introduced local Thrive programs and they created close to 5,000 affordable housing units to provide services, to help with excess food and support with healthy relationships. There are other examples, what BMC is doing. If a patient goes to a provider and the provider has the tools while they're assessing the patients, while they're writing a prescription, there's a question, do you have access to food or, you know, other other uh, utilities, and if the answer is no, the provider is literally able to prescribe for groceries from the food pantry that BMC has, which includes very disease-specific diets and health programs and options to govern for the patient and families. So these are just few examples, and I know this 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 won't solve the epidemic of diabetes, but at least it's a start.
0: No, I I agree with you. I think it's important to sort of highlight the programs where they've been successful. And, um, you know, Kaiser, certainly uh, familiar with. But the other one that you mentioned, BMC, who who are you? Boston Medical Center. Boston Medical Center. Okay, I'm sorry, I I, I wasn't sure who precisely. But, you know, let's pick on Kaiser because they're a slightly different um, health insurer. I mean, there's still a health insurance but they essentially, I mean, I am i know I'm going to get into trouble, but I'm going to call it capitated care of some description. And for the most part, single payer system, which says, you know, they're incentivized and therefore doing the right things. And actually, you know, you describe some fantastic programs. Imagine that, prescribing food, you know, almost unheard of. So I think some, you know, great examples and some lessons in there that potentially say we should be tilting further to that. We haven't seen a lot of, I mean, I think ACOs are still fundamentally stuck at about a third of the rate of insured people. Um, we need to move further to that. Do you have other examples of this that, you know, you've seen that are working? So uh, one of the other examples, again, I'm very
1: to BMC so Boston Medical Center they also started the Week here program in which they were able to again assess the needs and necessities for food for the patients they implemented the program and the the accessibility to food and employment increased from 80 to 8 to 70 percent so there have been very noticeable changes. Uh, I I just want to be
0: sure I get that 8 to 70? 8 to
1: 70 percent yeah wow so significant improvement Uh, Again, I think it depends on what's the mission and vision of the healthcare organization. So coming back to different peer groups, peer system, I think, rightly, as we are seeing, the shift is there towards value-based care, and I think that needs to happen once the physicians are properly aligned, once they have the right incentives and parts to provide the endpoint for the patients. I think that's where, uh, that's how the journey needs to start, and that's The direction I think which we are going. It's a slow move, but I think slowly but surely we hopefully get there.
0: And as you think about the sort of inputs to all of this, obviously to track it and to demonstrate the value propositions, do we have enough data that helps us guide this program and and importantly demonstrate the value proposition? Because ultimately it it has to, otherwise people are not going to pay for it, right? Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely uh, right, Nick. Uh, long
1: question. Uh, we can spend a lot of time answering that, but in 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 briefly, I would say, I, I think there is a drive towards that. Uh, people are there. A lot of companies and firms who have recognized the challenges. Uh, we are working on interoperability. Uh, we are working on technology platforms which which are EHR agnostics who can collect the data, but more than collecting the data we need to ensure that it's a meaningful data, how that data can be used for the providers to give very clear endpoints and interventions. So I think if we can do all of those, it may take time, but by by analyzing those meaningful data and giving it to patient, to providers uh, and care transition teams, I think maybe that's where we see some impact.
0: Fantastic. Well, unfortunately, as we have uh, uh, each and every week, we've run out of time. So it just remains for me to thank you uh, for joining me on the show. Ankit, thanks for joining me. Thanks a lot, Nick. Thanks for joining me today. Do you have any better ideas or have you found a small incremental change that's brought about a big improvement in your world? Let's continue the conversation on our hashtag, The Incrementalist, or share with me at DrNick1 on Twitter. You can find more information about the show on our program page at healthcarenowradio.com and tune in next time to hear my discussions with leaders and innovators from around the globe who've revolutionized their space by using small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist, and I'm starting a revolution through evolution.